It's so good to have um, our family worship today as we are entering into this uh, Christmas season. Um, I don't know when the last time it was that you had received some significantly good news, um, but it's fairly infrequent, isn't it? Uh, we don't hear it as much. Maybe you got accepted to something, you got invited to something, you won something, or someone said yes to you, and we have those moments. I remember right out of college, um, I had applied for a job, and it was uh, in August, and I had applied for a job, I was waiting, and I was... Um, I had finished in four years, but I was short. I found out, like right before my graduation, I found out I was short like four units, four or five units. And uh, so I asked one of my upper division sociology professors, could, I, could you help me with this? I want to walk and not come back in the fall. And so he said, okay, if you write a 20 to 25 page paper on this topic, um, he goes, I'll um, you know, give you the units and you could just walk and be done. So I was pretty excited about that, but I had till the end of August to finish that paper, and it was hanging over my head all summer, right? I have to write a 20 to 25 page paper um, by the end of August, and I was, oh, I was kind of dreading it. And I got a call one day, and it was from his assistant, and she had called on behalf of Dr. So-and-so, and I forgot his name now. It's been a while. Um, and she said, I have some bad news. And I said, oh, what's, you know, what's the bad news? He said, well, you know, they had a family tragedy. And it was, it was tragic. The, um, the daughter of the professor ended up being, um, was a victim of uh, homicide. She was murdered. That was terrible. Anyway, so um, uh, it was terrible news. I said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And so the TA continued and said, well, so because of that, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, uh, you know, this paper that you're trying to do, he won't be around this, uh, you know, semester, quarter. And so I said, well, what does that mean? And one side of me, I was really hoping, I hope he just lets me go with the paper. And the other side is like, oh, man, I hope I don't have to come back in. He goes, well, he just said that he'll give you the units. Don't worry about it, right? Now, it was terrible news, but for me, it was like really great news in one sense. And I was trying to respond with a smile on my face, um, jumping up and down saying, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Please tell him I'm so sorry, but I don't have to do the paper. So you're saying I don't have to do the paper because you don't have to do the paper. He's going to give you the units. You're done. You're official. And I remember, it's one of those moments. It felt a little wrong, but man, I was so excited that I didn't have to write this paper and I was free, right? And I remember um, receiving that kind of news. And I remember going to my first job interview. And uh, when I went to the job interview, I was sitting in the boardroom. It was literally right after, uh, at the same time. And uh, the boss, that, who, the person who eventually became my boss was interviewing me. It was in a uh, nonprofit sector in, in Koreatown and in L.A., and he said, well, um, he had a stack of resumes with him, and he was, says, okay, I'll be right back. And he was in a manila folder, he had all these resumes, and when he stepped out, I was curious, what's my competition like? So I scrolled through, 20, 25. What stood out was there was a Harvard, there, and everyone else was from UCLA. I was the only anomaly. And I said, oh, boy, this should be interesting. So I gave my best. I don't know what I said, but I, I knew two people that worked there. So at the end, I got the job, right? Um, so the big lesson is, it's not where you go, it's who you know, right? Um, so don't worry so much about that. And I've never looked at Harvard the same way afterwards um, uh, of that. But, you know, whether it is a, a news of 
getting a job, boy, your paper, here you go, you don't have to do something, or something positive in that sense. We, we love that, but it's fairly rare. And really, in our, in our lifetime, we could count on the fingers of our hands the times we had some really great news. Today, as we enter into a time of Christmas and we celebrate the birth of Jesus, as a, we call it Advent, uh, we spend a little time thinking about why this news of the birth of Jesus is such great, a source of great joy for Christians. It's, such, it's called the good news of great joy in the passage that we read uh, because it, it, it's because of two things. Number one is the people who receive it, the state of the people who receive it. And we're going to look at the first part um, is those who hear the good news, what state were they in? Right? It is the humble, it is the one that is in need that when they hear good news, it becomes great, a source of great joy. Now, if they are well-to-do, they are self-sufficient, they are everything, they have everything, there is not much good news that they need to hear. But from this passage, we see the state of the people, that they were in great fear, they were in darkness, um, and really, that is our state, right, that Christ came to us. And second part is who he is, the birth of the one who was to come. He is described here as uh, the Lord and Savior, and what does that mean to us? The Savior and Lord of my life. What does that mean? So part one is the recipients of the message, and part two is the one who was the subject of the message, the birth of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that. First of all, we see here the recipients, number one, the, the unworthy recipients of this great joy. We see this part here. It says here in verse 8, that describes a setting, the shepherds, are watching the sheep out in the field. And it tells us a little, um, Dr. Luke here gives us a little specific description, flock by night. They're watching them at night. Now, it is like going camping or being somewhere where there was no electricity. There was no electricity. They're sitting in the darkness. It is pitch black other than the small fire that they might have had. And they're sitting at night in the darkness. This not only, I think, describes their physical uh, state, but also really their spiritual state. They were in the dark. They were in a place of darkness. Um, also, it says here, on the contrast, in verse 9, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. So, we see this big contrast here Luke is trying to get across to us, and we don't want to skip over it. They're sitting in the dark. Any light would be blinding because their eyes are not adjusted. They are in darkness. And then the glory of the Lord, the brightest, most magnificent light, shone on them through the angel that makes this pronouncement. Uh, there is this sketch that Rembrandt drew called The Angel Appearing to the Shepherds. You see it here. Um, obviously, you could tell the angel, and on the bottom, it's hard to see um, up here, but you see the shepherds kind of scattering in fear. Those who observe this uh, describe the, depicts a st stunning, one person said that this depicts the stunning collision between heaven and earth. You see kind of right in the middle, right? If you look at it from far away, there's this dark chasm between heaven and earth, the angels and the shepherds. It's like it's almost a barrier. It's almost like a fence between them. And you see this whole diagonal darkness that's there. And Rembrandt's etching here shows us this to point out what he saw was the separation of the two. 
that one was very bright and one was in the darkness. And so this was now the condition, physically and spiritually, of the shepherds. Um, the shepherds also, we see here, they're not named. They're just grouped together anonymously. It's just they're known as a class of people, the shepherds. Everyone else is named throughout the scripture. The others are named. Zechariah is named. Mary is named. Joseph is named. But here it's just a group of shepherds. It's as if the gospel writer was trying to tell us the pronouncement comes to a group of people, a class of people. Now the shepherds were working class people. They were the blue collar people. They worked with animals. Literally, they smelled like the zoo, right? They smelled like the farm. And so a shepherd is not a person you want to be close to. A shepherd is not someone you want to invite over into your home. A shepherd is not someone that is appetizing to share a meal with because they literally were dirty and they were covered in the smell of animals. So much so that uh, even the religious considered them ceremonially unclean. They were not allowed to come in. Later on, in the court of law, they were not allowed to give a testimony. They were looked down upon. The shepherds were a class of people that no parent would say to their child, now study hard, because when you grow, if you don't study hard, right, you're going to end up being like them. And they were the negative example of society. They did what was important, but yet they were looked down upon. And every theologian will point out, or every Bible scholar will point out that this is very specific, that he goes not to an academy or a school or to the elites or where the money is, but he goes, the angel goes to a class of people called the shepherds, unnamed, unimportant, insignificant in society, but yet God goes to them. You see, it becomes good news when you are humble. The prerequisite of the gospel being good news is the person has to come in humility. That I can do nothing. That I am a nobody. That my efforts are not good enough. And when the gospel comes, we say, oh, that is good news of great joy. And so this now is given to a class of people who are in the darkness, who are looked down upon in society, who do not have much to offer, and yet the angel goes to them. Not only them, in the pronouncement, he says in verse 10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. This was going to now surpass ethnic lines and uh, borders of countries, social status. This was going to go to all people, male, female, rich, young, the Gentile, the Jew, it was going to go to everyone. This was the gospel. When it says it's going to all people, it's the idea of a particular people group. They share the language, they share their boundary, they share a culture, and it was going to infiltrate every culture. And we see it still happening today as the gospel is progressing along. And this was the good news. Secondly, um, continuing on the theme of who the people are, the recipients are, they had great fears. We have great fears. Our great fears are dispelled by greater joy. These were people who were sitting in fear. Now it tells us this in verse 9, right? An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. 
And I didn't want to skip over how important that was. Because you see that same word mentioned again in verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The same word is great. However big their fear was, there was going to be this good news, and it was going to be even greater. It was not just a a small joy, but it was a great joy. It was an immense joy. It was the news they were going to remember for the rest of their lives. It was going to change their lives. It was of great joy joy. Regardless of what circumstances they will face in the future, the news was going to be of a greater joy. Now you can imagine, if you were sitting out in the darkness in the field with a bunch of animals and an angel showed up, in all of God's glory, the blazing light of the angel, you would be scared. I would be scared. I would first pinch myself. Am I dreaming? Is this a hallucination? Am I having a dream? Then I would ask the person next to me, do you see what I see? Um, Yeah, there's a physical sense of being scared and shocked. But also, I think there was a deeper, a greater fear. Um, The greatest fear that we all have, that we don't even think about, is not encountering a burglar or a bad guy. That's fearful. Not having a demon pop up in the middle of the night, that's pretty fearful. I don't want that to happen. Or the devil himself to manifest to come to you. That's pretty scary. What is more fearful is approaching the living God, the omnipotent God, the judge of the world, the one who knows our hearts and our thoughts, our motives, in all of our deeds, to approach him. Now that is our greatest fear. That is man's greatest problem. How am I going to face God with, when he knows everything about me? My friends might not know. The people around me, they don't fully understand everything. I've been able to cover up or, or show myself in a different light. But we cannot in front of God. And that is fearful. And I think that's the fear. The shock and awe of it has turned to that fear of dread. Oh my gosh. We're guilty. I'm sure the first thought they they had was, God is here to, oh, he knows what I did. I knew I shouldn't have taken those sheep. right? And they were known at the time for kind of stealing sheep. And in the church world, uh, we we borrow that amongst pastors. Oh, you know, like, you know, that church they they're stealing our sheep or whatever it is right we talk about it in that sense and that's what they used to do so now the dread of their guilt is coming up and they're saying this is it i knew it i knew this day would come i shouldn't have done these things i'm so sorry and they come face to face with this angel thinking this is it every time in the bible um, we see this, in, especially in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah, when he encounters God, there is a sense of dread. Isaiah 6, 5, when he encounters God, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. For I am lost. The New Living Translation helps us a little bit. Woe to me, I am ruined. It says in the NIV, in the New Living Translation, which is a looser translation, it's all over. I am doomed. It is over. I am doomed. This is what Isaiah was saying. When he approached God and he saw God, I am doomed. 
I am a man of unclean lips. You want me to be your mouthpiece? You don't know the words that I say. You don't know the language that I use. You don't know the thoughts that I have. Woe is me. I am doomed. And this was how people um, responded when God appeared. This is how everyone will respond when God appears. And yet the first message is, do not fear. Uh, It is a theme, the fear not, in the Christmas stories. Every time the angel appeared, comes with good news. It says in, uh, to Zechariah in Luke one thirteen, angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Luke one thirty to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary. Matthew one twenty to Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. When Abraham is approached in Genesis 15.1, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. To Daniel, Daniel 10.12, he said to me, Fear not, Daniel. And so we see this here in the midst of our fears. The fear of approaching God, the fear of being exposed. God comes and he says, do not be afraid. R.C. Sproul uh, had, um, when he was hospitalized, he had written this. He said he had heard this message about uh, Luke 2. Someone had uh, shared this passage with him while he was hospitalized. And this is what he responded after he heard this. That's what I need, a savior. That's what I need in my life. Not just someone who will save me from my sin, but someone who will save me from my fear. Someone that I can go to and depend on and trust in absolutely in these moments when all of my frailness of my humanity is laid out on the table. Someone I can go and depend on. When all the frailness of my humanity is laid out on the table. And that is us. Um, I always get surprised how so many are going through very similar hardships. You know, and I have the privilege of praying for others and hearing from others. And uh, whether it's physical, relational, financial, I mean, it is ongoing. And there are so many people that it overlaps in multiple times, in multiple ways. And it is in the frailness of our humanity we can go to God and say, God, I'm afraid. And he comes to us as our Savior. And this is the the second part I want to highlight, is who he is. Who we are is we're sitting in darkness. We are a class of nobodies. We are living in great fear. And now the one who comes, what makes the gospel, the good news of great joy, is the one who comes and what that birth of Christ means. This great joy is found in the birth of Jesus, we see. There's two titles I want to highlight in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ and the Lord. Savior and Lord, I want to highlight that for us today. He comes as our Savior and Lord. Both of these are terms that people that feel like they're in control say, I don't need a Savior. Right? We want to portray ourselves today as someone independent and strong. I don't need a Savior. I don't need help. But when he says there is a Savior for you, there is an assumption that you are in need of saving, that you are in need of a Lord, someone who will tell you how to live, someone who will guide you in your life, Savior and Lord. We want to highlight that today. We 
especially where we live in Orange County and what we do and how driven we are and the people around us who are now moving up in society and they are you know, showing how wonderful that their families are, how nice their homes are, how great their jobs are, how good they are doing at school and how popular they are. You know, we are busy trying to now save ourselves. We often do this and we see this, this is made so evident in our social media culture today that we have to prove and show that my life is worthy. Tim Keller says this, most of us work and work trying to prove ourselves to convince God, others, and ourselves that we're good people. That work is never over unless we rest in the gospel. We're trying to prove to God, I'm pretty good. We're trying to prove to others, hey, I am worthy. And we're trying to prove to ourselves, you're valuable. This happens, I mean, really from middle school till the rest of our lives. You know, in middle school, I, I had moved schools. I, I was living in Northern California. I moved down, uh, went to middle school in Long Beach. And for a child to go to a new school, right? Some of you have moved recently, or some of you grew up moving a lot. It is the most difficult thing. What did you dread the most? Lunchtime. Who am I going to eat with, right? Especially the first few days or few weeks, I mean, you're sitting there. You don't know what you're eating. You're just looking around saying, they have friends, they have friends, they have friends. Hey, 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 you know. And so we come off as sometimes as, oh, I'm tough. Hey, I don't want friends, you know, like things like that. I like eating alone. I don't want friends, you know. Um, and that can, comes from junior high and goes on for the rest of our, our days. And the effort to save ourselves, to be accepted, and, you know, as we do this, you know, panic sets in. I mean, and this pressure in our society, you know, getting younger and younger, um, those who are born after 2010 are um, considered now called Generation Alpha. Right? We ran out of X, Gen Z, Gen Z, and now we're back to Alpha. And you know, one of the most popular um, Christmas gifts, wishes for Gen Alpha girls, you know what it is. It's no longer stuffed animals and music or things like that that's tangible. It's skincare, right? It's skincare. Can you believe that? Um, to the 10 year old, they, they're talking about using words like moisturizer, sunblock, sunscreen, serums, and toners. I mean, these are things I learned when I got married. I said, What are, why are there so many bottles here? I'm used to one bottle from Costco, and that we use that till you flip that thing upside down. And you put, you know, you get every bit of it out, but boy, it's just bottles after bottles after bottles. Now it is being marketed to those in the Generation Alpha age. These are the kids that actually have perfect skin, right? Uh, puberty hasn't hit yet. Their, their skin's perfect. They don't have to worry about acne or this or that, but somehow it is now on their lips. What are we saying in our society? We've got to look better. How can a 10-year-old look better? Why should they be concerned with that? But we're saying, you got to keep up. you got to look better. you got to put on these things. There was a book that's titled this, and I love the title. It says that everybody's normal till you get to know them. Isn't that so true? Everybody's normal till you get to know them. Right? Isn't that so true? I love that title. Because we portray ourselves, we want to be accepted, we want to save ourselves, we try so hard, 
But, you know, when you truly get to know someone and you become their friend and you say, oh, my gosh, that person's crazy, right? You're crazy, right? Oh, my gosh, you know, the way that he does this or she does that. And, oh, man, I can't even tell you. But that's all of us. And the moment we can get out of this uh, trying to impress others, we become acceptable to everyone else. You know, there's an author, a psychiatrist, Edward Hallowell, really describes our culture well. He says, we live in a society that is obsessed with and enslaved by achieving, yet at the same time is increasingly bankrupt and impoverished when it comes to connecting. We are obsessed, enslaved to achieving, he says. You go online and you look, if you're a mom and you have this pressure of raising perfect kids and they better be dressed perfectly and their snacks better be looking perfect because someone else is posting how wonderful their lunch is and it covers every part of the you know, four food groups and it's all delicious and their kids are perfect and you're barely getting things ready and you feel inadequate. Or you're trying to go for a job and so-and-so, you know, is working now. They're going to have this kind of job that's paying X amount. And you're saying, oh my gosh, how am I going to measure up to this? Your old friends from elementary school, as you go to junior high and high school, they're growing up so fast. And you look at them and they seem like they have everything together. They know everything. They talk about sex and relationships, and they're just experienced in everything. You say, how am I going to keep up? How can I act cool enough to just go along with it so I can be now accepted? C.S. Lewis has a, a short um, an article that he wrote called The Inner Ring. The idea that he says that all of us want to belong in this inner ring. And he says this, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, and all in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. To be excluded. To be forgotten. And so we strive and we try to now become acceptable. We try to save ourselves. There's a writer named Susan Najalda, um, she writes from India, and she writes an article, a letter to my 20-year-old self, she calls it. Um, and she basically says, you don't need to prove yourself. A letter to my 20-year-old self. And she writes this, and it's a little bit longer, but I do want to read a, a, just a portion of it for us here. And she said it so well. She says this, you want to fit in. This is her talking to her 20-year-old self. You want to fit in to belong and for others to see that you do. You think that life will be made if you're offered a fancy job at one of those skyscrapers downtown. Without a doubt, those things, the job, the husband, the friends, and their acceptance give you a sense of security, but only fleetingly so. Finding a loving spouse won't cure that nagging self-doubt in your heart. Neither will that enviable job. Winning the approval of people won't fill that void. That aching search for worth can only be fully satisfied in Christ's full acceptance and love. I urge you to find your significance in God. Draw your self-worth from Him. Live in the fullness He longs to bless you with, free of the exhausting need to prove yourself to others. Your life is found in Him. I know you long to be seen and validated by the world. 
But if you live by that law, you'll be tossed about. You'll feel trapped in performance mode, constantly living up to labels of successful or likable. Those security blankets that you've tightly wrapped around yourself will be ripped away. Friends leave or let you down. Your college degree may not get you the job on which you have pinned your hopes. The man who fits all your must-have standards may not feel quite the same way you do. Your performance may not win you the promotion. Standing decades down the road, I can assure you that your perfect game plan will unravel. Ten or so years from now, when the world of social media and its instant and continuous avenues of approval crashes in on your quiet, your search for significance will become even more thorny. When your soul satisfaction is in God, however, you won't need to compare your life with carefully curated online updates. Pleasing God will far outweigh all the potential one-dimension thumbs-up emoticons. You don't need to prove yourself. And so we pause and we think today about him being our savior. The one who saves us from our sins but gives us now our worth and who we are. And then he's considered secondly as Lord. The baby Jesus who is born is given the title Lord. Lord meaning master, ruler, the ruler of the universe. He is my Lord. I just want to wrap up highlighting this. When we think about the Lord, we need a Lord because we don't know what we're doing. We need a Lord because uh, we are terrible masters of our own lives. You think about all the things that we try to do by our own passions and how lost we get. 